And we all got dreams, we all want things But what you gonna do for it, how you gonna move for it, what you gonna be And do you believe, you can do anything But what you gonna do for it, how you gonna move for it, what you gonna be Another edition of Outside Shots presented by TheLines.com. You can follow us on X at TheLinesUS. Remember that. If you want to tail or fade our college basketball picks on this episode recording here on Thursday, February 15th, you can do so with the Lines promo code over at BetMGM Sportsbook. First-time users, bet $5. You get $150 in bonus bets. Remember that. Bonus bets are not equivalent to real money. And as always, terms and conditions available over at thelines.com. You can follow all of our bets in real time in the Lines Discord channel. The link is over at thelines.com. In the top right-hand corner, breaking down the college basketball card for this weekend with Steven Andrus. He is back on the podcast after a week off. How are we doing, Steven? Uh, it would have been a little better if my 49ers won the Super Bowl, but I am excited to get deep into the weeds of college basketball. We have nine games that we're going to talk about on this show, plus a special guest at the end. We just had Valentine's Day and Mississippi Valley State at minus 250 did cash as the last team in Division One without a win <laughs> after the one-man court storm at Detroit Mercy on February the 14th. So um, really nowhere to go but up from there in Division One. Yeah, and no matter how bad your Valentine's Day might have been, hopefully it was good, but let's just say it was a net negative overall in your life. Nothing was worse than anyone who bet St. Joe's against Loyola Chicago on Wednesday night. Three and a half point road dogs. Top 45 three-point shooting team in college basketball this year, shooting around 27%, I think, for the game, 7 of 24 from deep and missed a three with under a second to go, fouled with 0.1 seconds, down three. Little Chicago goes down at the other end of the court and hits two free throws, lose by five, lose the bet. Whether you had plus three and a half or you got the best of the number with the Hawks plus four. Rough, rough, rough beat to say the least. A lot can happen in one-tenth of a second, including money leaving your betting account for all of eternity. So keep that in mind and um, never bet what you can't afford to lose because this is a silly, silly sport we love and love to bet on. So let's get things started here, Eli. On Saturday, 12.30 p.m. tip-off on Fox, number 17 Creighton at Butler. These two teams played already this year. Butler squeaked out a win in Creighton. Haslametrics, our good friends over there, project this spread as Creighton minus one and a half with an over under of 150. A reminder, we record this show on Thursday afternoon, so we're doing our best to give you projections on what the spread will be. But obviously those spreads for these Saturday games won't come out until late Friday night. So maybe there's a difference in these numbers that'll lead to value. But uh, we're going to go by our friends at Haslametrics for projected spreads on this show. Eli, you have your ranking for Creighton around where the AP is. You have him at number 19. Butler, obviously not ranked. What do you see in this rematch here in the Big East? Yeah, so Creighton overall has bounced back after that one-point loss that you mentioned to Butler a couple Fridays ago and losing at Providence in overtime last week, too. And Butler coming off of a two-possession loss to Marquette. Probably should have been by a bit more just because Marquette was winning by double digits throughout much of the second half or right around that number. Now, the concern for Creighton is opponents over their last 10 games shooting 38.1% from three. Now, if you look at Butler 
in Big East play shooting just over 36%. So you would say, traditionally speaking, if you're looking at surface level metrics like three-point percentage, which to me and to you, I think, are more surface level traditional stats that Butler should cover if not win this game outright. And it is a good spot. Butler's NCAA tournament hopes are on the line. A pretty good home court advantage, at least in the context of the Big East at Hinkle Fieldhouse. But I will say, Creighton has gotten unlucky when it comes to their three-point defense, which is why I'm kind of back in on the Blue Jays. You and I were going back and forth about this very briefly over Slack. We have Creighton Futures going back to the preseason. I made that bet, I think, on the opening night of the NFL season, believe it or not. And I don't think this Creighton defense is as bad as that stat would make you think, just because that three-point defense, generally speaking, is more so luck-based. Now, you can have a rim funnel or a three-point funnel defense and protect the paint with a no-middle defense, but Creighton doesn't really run a no-middle defense. They use drop coverage with Cockbrenner, which does allow for open threes, but then again, Butler doesn't really have the big. They start Jalen Thomas, doesn't shoot a lot of threes, I think, 10 three-point attempts on the season. So he's not going to really space out Cockbrenner. And I know Butler had a good three-point shooting night at Creighton in that upset think they're around seven, seven and a half point road dogs two weeks ago. But I make this game around Creighton minus three. So despite the spot, numbers wise and with Butler's resume metrics wise being maybe a little bit inflated just because they're out shooting what they should be shooting from deep, I kind of favor Creighton here. I agree. And even though it's on the road, you know, you look at the first matchup, Butler made 13 threes, shot 59% from the arc. So maybe we get some regression there. I, I agree with you. If Creighton can somehow figure out its perimeter defense, or at least maybe just draw a path in the brackets where they're not facing a lot of good perimeter shooting teams, they're going to be in business here. Maybe even some small teams that they can face where they can dominate because inside the arc, they're really good. They are number one in the Big East in two-point field goal percentage defense. They're number one in the Big East, number three in the nation in two-point field goal percentage offense. So at both ends of the floor inside the arc, they are elite. So if Butler goes cold from three in this game, aren't they kind of screwed here? Like, aren't they required to make threes in this game to stay close? So I agree with you there. On the offensive side for Creighton, you know, you're going to call me a hypocrite here, but I almost think they're taking too many threes. You know, they are top five in the nation in field goal percentage from both the mid range and near proximity, but they're outside the top 300 in the rate of field goal attempts they have from mid range and near proximity. So I think they need to tick that up a little bit, get a little more efficient, you know, not live and die by the three as much as they have. And I think they're in business here. I think you got high upside here potentially. Yeah, and going back to your point about Butler attacking the rim, potentially inefficiently in this game, Ryan Kochbrenner, if you go back, A, one of the best defensive centers in college basketball, but let's take a step back to last Saturday against Xavier when Creighton started to take control late in the first half and dominated for the most part in the second half outside of a couple Xavier runs. Musketeers missed 37 shots overall in that game. Ryan Kochbrenner blocked or contested 16 of them. I think he had yeah. four blocks in the game overall, elite defensively, especially mm-hmm. around the basket, which you alluded to. And also to your point about Critton getting more efficient looks at the rim and maybe being less reliant on their perimeter shooting, 
because that could be an issue for March if you go in March if you go cold and for a team that values its transition defense over maybe creating some more second chance opportunities with offensive rebounds. But Utah State transfer in Stephen Ashworth and Cockbrenner's chemistry has really started to improve of late, especially when you go back to that Xavier game. I watched some of the film. I hate to say like I'm a film guy, but I did go back and watch the game earlier this week. And good on you. Thank you. And you look at some of the lobs off of dribble handoffs between Ashworth and Cockbrenner. That's improved in the last two or three games, especially in that Musketeers game. And some of their short rolls with Cockbrenner off of ball screens going to the basket and lobs in pick and roll. So I've been impressed. And that's going to happen when you have a point guard transferring in from a mid-major. Not the strongest point guard defensively overall, especially when you get thrown into the Wolves or thrown against some of the stronger and more athletic teams in college basketball in the Big East. But also just chemistry-wise against one of the better rim rollers in the country or with one of the better rim rollers. So I've been impressed from that standpoint going back to last Saturday specifically. And I do think Creighton's going to get more efficient shots, particularly in this game with Cockbrenner at the rim. Yeah, I'd be surprised if I don't have a Creighton bet in this game, and I am optimistic that the ceiling is still there for Creighton if they can just tweak their shot selection a little bit and get a little luckier with their perimeter defense. So I'm I'm with you on that one. Let's go to the ACC. Number 9, Duke at Florida State. 2 p.m. tip-off on ESPN. Haslametrics makes Duke a six-point road favorite, over-under of 152. Eli, you're right on with the AP poll here. You have Duke number 9 in your power rankings over at thelines.com. Florida State not ranked here. Pace is interesting to me in this game, Eli. Top 35 pace for Florida State. Duke in the top half of Division One. I think there's a lot to like about Duke's offense in this game and potentially a lot to like about Florida State's offense inside the three-point line in this game. That's interesting because I kind of see it going the other way, going back to our conversation with North Carolina, Florida State, and depending on what number you got with Florida State at home in that one, pretty much covered both games unless you got a late number with the Knowles. But looking at the Knowles offense here, Duke's defense has actually been more reliable inside the arc and especially at the rim. You would think that because Duke doesn't have as much size against Florida State and really overall, you don't have Derek Lively like they did, a rim protector and a shot blocker, which they had last year and obviously going to the NBA draft. And Florida State ranks outside of the top 300 in three-point attempt rate. But like both UNC games, unless... FSU just goes cold from behind the arc. I think Leonard Hamilton is going to scheme Florida State's offense to take more threes. And Duke is below the Division One average in three-point attempt rate allowed. So they don't, I don't want to consider them like a pack line defense, but they are going to give you more three-point attempts than they will shots, at least right at the basket. And also on the flip side for Florida State, defensively, for the Knowles, if their ball pressure is able to create some turnovers, and I know that's kind of uncharacteristic for Duke overall, you have a more reliable lead guard or at least semi-lead guard in Jeremy Roach. Tyrese Proctor, probably the lesser reliable guard of the two between Proctor and Roach, but still, I think his turnover percentage is around 14 15%, so not bad by any means. But if he makes some uncharacteristic decisions against 
FSU's ball pressure, which can create turnovers, and FSU is able to leak out in transition and get some of those open threes on the fast break. As you mentioned, pace is going to be a pretty big factor if Florida State is able to play up tempo. Then I make this game around Duke minus five, just considering the spot with Duke winning six of its last seven, FSU losing five of its last seven. So Duke probably at the peak of its market rating, despite only losing to North Carolina in its last seven games. I kind of like FSU here if they're able to control the pace. If I'm betting this game, I'm probably looking to the over, even though it's a high number. looks like it might be in the low 150s. And again, if you want to see what I'm betting on these Saturday games, you can go to the lines.com top right-hand corner, hit the Discord button. It is free to join. You can check out the Staff Basketball Bets channel to find all of my college basketball bets in there. So I, I want to get some clarity from you. Are you are you saying Duke's interior defense is improving by your observation? Because at least right now on paper, you know, Florida State, their best offensive ranking is in near proximity field goal percentage. And Duke is outside the top one hundred there. And if you look just in ACC play, Florida State's number two overall in the ACC on two point field goal attempts. Duke's number nine in ACC play defending two point field goal attempts. So just give me some clarity here on what exactly you mean with, with Duke's interior defense. Yeah, so when you look at overall this season, I was actually kind of surprised to see it. Points allowed in the paint per game, Duke ranks 81st in the 81st percentile. So percentage of points in the paint, it dips to the 65th percentile. But my point was this isn't as bad. This isn't like a rim funnel defense truly susceptible around the basket like you would expect for a team that doesn't have an elite shot blocker. Yeah, I I think the one thing I am completely confident about is Duke's ability to score points in this game, to be honest with you. They're top four across the board in ACC play and most of the offensive numbers, except for free throw shooting. But they should get at least a ton of free throw attempts. FSU's defense fouls a lot. They are dead last in the ACC in free throw attempt to field goal attempt ratio. And FSU's bottom five in ACC play, an effective field goal percentage, offensive rebounding allowed, and two-point field goal percentage. So at the very least, I think Duke's going to score in this game. Now, I know your number makes this spread a little inflated. I mean, I think that's naturally going to come at this point of the season with any Duke game. They're just a very popular public side. But I'm very confident that we're going to get a lot of points in this game at least, and at least at a lot of, f- of free throw attempts. So that's kind of why I'm leaning to the over here, Eli. No, it's fair. And you go back to North Carolina Duke, just for instance, and I know Duke's has been a little bit more reliable than you would expect inside the paint defensively, but in that game, Baycott... See, it depends how Florida State plays this, because FSU doesn't have your traditional low post big. They rely on getting points in transition, which Duke can be vulnerable in, like I said, if they're turning the basketball over. In the half court, it's a little bit of a different story, but you look at that UNC game, in the Dean Dome, and Baycott had his way with Filipowski and then some. FSU doesn't have a traditional low post back-to-the-basket big like Baycott can be. I know he's been a little bit more inconsistent, but generally speaking, he is pretty reliable on the low block when UNC gets him enough touches and gets him involved. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Leonard Hamilton plays this in the half court. Staying in the ACC, Duke's rival, North Carolina, 
number seven in the AP poll, hosting Virginia Tech on Saturday, 2 p.m. tip-off on ACC Network. Haslam Metrics makes North Carolina an 11-point home favorite, over-under of 149.5. In Eli's rankings, of course, Virginia Tech also not ranked. And you are right again with the AP poll with UNC at number seven. Now, let's have a discussion about North Carolina. Lost three of their past five games. We have talked about on previous shows that I have been concerned about North Carolina being outside the top 200 and rim and three rate, which is going to increase the chance of being upset any given night. And sure enough, three of the last five, including to my Syracuse Orange, which is why I'm wearing the gear today. Great win. So good that they're still not good enough to be on the next four out line, apparently, of most bractology. So <laughs> uh, great. Good, but not great, apparently. But back to North Carolina here, Eli. You know, I'm very tempted to take 11 if that's what the spread's going to be here with Virginia Tech, just because of the way North Carolina has played in recent weeks. Yeah, they've lost two of their last five, or they've lost three of their three last of their five. Last five. Right, three of the last five, including a home loss to Clemson. We'll get to the Tigers in a little bit. I have some pretty alarming stats for you about UNC's defense. I know you mentioned that their shot selection isn't great, but Syracuse had a 70.8% effective field goal percentage. Yeah, they couldn't miss. Right, they couldn't miss. Inside the arc and behind the arc, 22 of 31 from two, 8 of 17 from three. That combined for the second highest. This is wild. Second highest effective field goal percentage and two-point percentage by an opponent in the Kempom era, which dates back to 1999. Holy hell. your orange were elite offensively. Could you ever have expected, say, that under Jim Beheim, at least in the last five years? Probably not. No. I mean, you're getting me excited that we might make an NIT run to Madison Square Garden now. But other than that, I mean, I'm not I'm not excited, but I am quite surprised. Now, one other thing, too, with with UNC, which doesn't necessarily favor Virginia Tech offensively just because they're so three point oriented. That's the way Mike Young's offense typically work, especially this team with Hunter Couture. But UNC's rim defense largely has been a strength especially when you have a really good shot blocker in Armando Baycott, but not of late. Syracuse 13-16 at the rim. Miami nearly upsetting UNC, covering last Saturday. 16-22 at the rim. Clemson 9-14. Duke 20-29, even in a nine-point loss not covering at UNC. And Georgia Tech in that upset as an eight-and-a-half-point home dog, 10-16. That's concerning for a defense and largely in general for a team that isn't getting efficient shots and does allow transition opportunities because of that, or at least of late, I'm pretty concerned with UNC overall, man, even if maybe they cover this game and have a bounce back performance against Vatek. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm very tempted to take double digits here with Virginia tech. If that's what it's going to be. Uh, the one concern I have with their defense against UNC's offense is it appears that UNC is going to dominate the offensive glass and get a lot of second chance opportunities here. That gives me pause. It's almost like I'm watching the ACC version of Houston offensively with North Carolina here. Uh, but overall, I mean, really cool matchup in terms of the effective field goal percentage stats here. Number one effective field goal percentage offense of Virginia Tech against the number one effective field goal percentage defense in North Carolina. 
And if what you're saying is true after shooting all those holes and concerns in North Carolina's defense, then I'm probably leaning towards liking the offensive side of that number one effective field goal percentage matchup. So, yeah, we'll we'll see what the number is when it comes out. The game is in Chapel Hill, so I can't imagine there's going to be a ton of interest on Virginia Tech, but we'll see. But your your points about North Carolina are well taken. And just give us a final thought here in the ACC about Clemson. I know you wrote them up as potentially a, a sleeper Final Four team here. Yeah, one last nugget on UNC, which sides with potentially taking Vatek, unless, like I had on, UNC just has a bounce-back game and trucks inside the arc, like you touched on, too, with Baycott and generating second-chance shots. But if you go back from December 20th through January 26th, UNC's opponents shot 22 or 22.8% from three. January 27th through Valentine's Day yesterday, as we're recording this on Thursday, 36.8%. So high-variance team and regression has come. Maybe negative, or maybe they get some positive regression in this game if Vatek is off from three. But traditionally speaking, that's not what Mike Young's offense offenses do. Have an off-shooting night, top 70 in three-point scoring rate. That's a strength of this team yet again this season. Motion offense that relies heavily on its perimeter shooting with Couture and these really, really high-volume three-point shooters. So I'm not super concerned for Vatek unless they just have one of those negative variance games like we saw with St. Joe's against Loyola Chicago on the road last night. But last thing I want to get to with Clemson and the ACC, you can read the full yeah. breakdown about my futures bet over at thelines.com. Final four future, 20-1 to one on FanDuel Sportsbook. You can use the promo code. Over at thelines.com for FanDuel, so be sure to check that out too if you're not a user over at FanDuel Sportsbook. But biggest note that I didn't touch on in the article just because I had a lot of teams to get to, since North Carolina State transfer Jack Clark came back from his injury on January 20th, I know like UNC and Virginia Tech in a sense too, Clemson may be known more so for its offense this season, but Clemson is a top 20 defensive efficiency in the country since Clark came back on January 20th. So really, really big Clemson offense, even though you have a smaller point guard and guards that can get beat off the dribble like we saw last night against Miami. Gerard, really good three-point shooter, Syracuse transfer, but a liability defensively, but really, really big up front with Clark back in the lineup, three through five. So... Also, like Virginia Tech, Clemson relies on its three-point shooting and really efficient, especially of late. I know they had some negative variants themselves in the beginning of ACC play, but P.J. Hall and Gerard have really stepped it up from behind the arc, and they're positioned for a number five seed overall right now. So a team that's 28-1, to and considering they're favored in what? Five of their next six games to wrap up the regular season. They could theoretically finish with a number four seed. That's pretty good value at 28-1 to for a potential number four seed, even if you're not super high in the ACC. And last point here, plus 1750 over at one of the sharper sports books, Circa Sports. So just keep that in mind too. For a team that's priced at 28 to one, even if you're just playing the number, I think it's a good bet. To the Big East, top five matchup on Saturday. Number four, Marquette. At number one, UConn, 3 p.m. tip-off Eastern time on Saturday. You can watch this one on Fox. UConn, a five-point home favorite if you look at Haslametrics projections, over-under of 146. 
Eli, you also have UConn in the uh, in the top two here. You have number two. You have Marquette considerably lower than the AP poll. You only have Marquette at number 13. So just your first thoughts here as we dig into this, what in my opinion is the game of the day on Saturday. Absolutely. Top five matchup. And even though I have Marquette, I think outside of my top 10, to your point in my power ratings, which you could find over at thelines.com, they do have a somewhat of a matchup advantage in this game, which I'll get to. But first and foremost, UConn, I guarantee you, will be looking for revenge. I know they won the national title last year, but one of their last losses, because they haven't lost a lot recently, came in the Big East Tournament semifinal to Marquette. Marquette not only winning the regular season title in the Big East, but also winning the Big East Tournament last year. So keep that in mind. It may not seem like the biggest situational spot just because UConn has been rolling longest active winning streak in college basketball. Granted, Marquette has been rolling as well. They won eight straight, but... You look at Marquette up front, just overall, they lack size and they struggle in the rebounding department. They've been a little bit better in terms of cleaning up the defensive glass in Big East play when you look at their overall body of work versus against conference opponents. But I think it's still going to glare its ugly head in this game against Donovan Klingon and a pretty good offensive rebounding team for the Huskies overall. Now, on the flip side of that, where I mentioned Marquette could have an advantage is UConn actually ranks below the Division One average when it comes to their transition defense, fast break points per game in the 47th percentile. And that was not, like, if you look back at last year, athletically, UConn is maybe a little bit more athletic than they were last year, even though they had Andre Jackson, who was a really, really good defender in transition. But still, not a big concern for the Huskies, especially when you look back at their neutral site games specifically the NCAA tournament. I know they dominated much of those games, but still, their transition defense held up in a big way. And Marquette ranks in the 96th percentile when it comes to percentage of fast break points per game, per CVB analytics. So that's where Marquette thrives. If UConn isn't dominating the offensive glass and if Marquette can leak out in transition, I think this this game could be a little bit closer than maybe the line and the market drives it up to. I have it closer to UConn minus five and a half minus six, just for context. The opening line might be even bigger too, because I think Ken Baum has this at seven. Um, I saw the same thing you did. If, if Marquette's going to keep this close, I think they need to turn UConn over and get in transition. Marquette's top 15 in the country, number one of the big East and takeaway percentage. So, uh, and UConn, their turnover issues have increased. I mean, they're still top 70 overall in the season, but they are bottom half of the Big East. The motivation angle is duly noted here. As crazy as that sounds for a defending national champion, they didn't win the Big East last year in the regular season or the tournament. So I think that is a motivation angle here to to get a championship. And they are perfect at home this year. They're 13-0 at home. So um, it's almost, in my mind, required for Marquette to turn over UConn and get some easy buckets to keep this game close, in my opinion. Because if you look at the half court, the defensive edges here, I think, are for UConn in the half court big time. Because Marquette is a big rim and three team. They're only 354th in mid-range field goal attempts. And UConn is 35th in defending the threes and 7th in near proximity field goal defense. So... That's that's a really tough matchup in the half court for Marquette's offense. And when UConn has the ball, they also are a big rim and three team. They don't take they're outside the top three hundred in mid range field goal attempts. And Marquette's D only 
top 50 in near proximity field goal percentage defense and outside the top 150 in defending the three. So I think UConn has some opportunities there. UConn's also a really, really good offensive rebounding team, top 20 in offensive rebounding percentage overall. So I I think the eight-game winning streak comes to an end here for Marquette. I'm not sure I have the guts like you to potentially take Marquette in the points here. I think I'd probably either pass. I'm definitely going to pass pregame, I think. But there have been plenty of times this season where you get a great in-game number on UConn, and I'm going to look for maybe an opportunity to do that here. If I can get UConn somehow, you know, possession or less live, that'd be very attractive to me. Yeah, and just going back to your point with the turnovers too, Transition defense aside, just because when UConn turned the ball over last year, specifically in the tournament, which I, I mean, you could probably count, maybe not, because I said it a lot on our podcast last year, how concerned I was with UConn's turnover rate, and it never, ever reared its ugly head in the tournament, which I was shocked about, especially in the San Diego State game. So just because on paper, Marquette should theoretically be able to turn UConn over, it may not matter if UConn is dominating the offensive glass. Yeah, I'm with you on that. But game of the day for sure. Cannot wait to see it. Two teams that are going to be big factors come the brackets in, in March. So very excited for this one in the Big East. To the Big 12, number 6 Kansas at number 25 Oklahoma. 4 p.m. Eastern time tip-off Saturday on ESPN. Despite being the lower-ranked team, Haslametrics projects the Sooners as a two-point home favorite in this one, over-under of 142.5. Eli, you do not have Oklahoma in your top 25. You have Kansas slightly lower than the AP. You have them at number 10. Intriguing matchup here for sure because, you know, we've talked about it at length. This is not your traditional Kansas powerhouse. I think we would both agree on that, Uh, but... And and they've struggled on the road in Big 12 play. They haven't been the dominant force in this conference this year. Yeah, and that has a lot to do with injuries. Kevin McCuller, I mean, this to your point, too, this isn't your typical truck fest of a Kansas team, albeit they've done that at Allen Fieldhouse in big games. Houston not covering against Baylor last weekend, but still winning the game outright. Big, big, big game for Kansas, just considering their road struggles, which you hit on. But McCuller, knee injury, he's missed... I think three of their last five games and missing the Texas Tech game. I know some people were speculating on X that he didn't want to play at Texas Tech in Lubbock just because he used to play there and he got hell in his return at Texas Tech when he's done. So I think only once, but still. Dwan Harris also dealing with an ankle injury and that was evident in the Texas Tech game on Monday night. Big Monday, Kansas got wrecked, and the market was all over Texas Tech, and rightfully so. It was justified with Texas Tech winning, I think, by 20-plus points. But this is going to bring a smile to your face, Stephen, because I have an NFL comp for you. At least prior to the Texas Tech game, Kansas's market rating, because McCullers' injury should have been baked in a little bit more than I think the market was perceiving ahead of the Texas Tech game, because I thought the market did a good job of driving up the Red Raiders, especially before tip. And once the McCuller injury news popped up, Kansas kind of reminds me of the Eagles, the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm not talking about the Marquette Golden Eagles in the sense that the market adjusted to the Eagles down the stretch, but not entirely. I mean, you go back to the Arizona Cardinals game at home 
when they lost as, what, double-digit home favorites? I know it was Kyler Murray and the Arizona Cardinals, but still, they closed as two-and-a-half, three-point road favorites without A.J. Brown. So outside of the Texas Tech game, I've been kind of surprised at the market's rating, especially game-by-game spread for Kansas with McCuller at least banged up, if not out of the lineup. So I'm really curious to see where this spread closes, just because you may see a little bit of an over-adjustment on Kansas. I know I just said that, that the market has been not adjusting enough, but I think based on the result on Monday night, you may see an overinflated line in Oklahoma's direction, especially with hearing what Haslametrics makes the point spread for this game around two, maybe even three. And Oklahoma's no middle defense should give some open three point looks for Kansas. I know they shot three of 16 against Texas Tech, but Furphy's got to get more involved offensively than what we saw in that game. And depending on the health of McCuller, I mean, if McCuller plays, I think it's a really good bounce back spot for Kansas. Depending on the ankle status for for Harris, maybe Kansas is able to get some more open threes against a interior-oriented Oklahoma defense and potentially pull off the upset, which is crazy to say for a Kansas team. But uh, Kansas also, when you look at their Rim defense, 96th and when it comes to percentile of points allowed in the paint, which is where Oklahoma wants to score. So not a great stat for Oklahoma offensively either when they're in the half court. I kind of side with Kansas here just depending on where the line closes. Yeah, the, the only the thing that always makes me queasy about backing Kansas is just their lack of depth. So any given game, if they were to get into foul trouble, especially on the road, that's a real challenge for them. And Oklahoma is one of the better teams in college basketball at getting to the free throw line. They're top 70 overall in free throw attempt to field goal attempt ratio. Number two in the Big 12 in that category is just a fancy way of saying they get to the line a lot. And Again, 337th in bench minutes is what Kansas ranks this year in Division One. So they don't they don't get a lot of minutes. They don't ask a lot from their bench guys at all. So if starters get in foul trouble, that's a big issue for them. Now, the OU offense here, Eli, is is what gives me pause because they're inconsistent. Their offensive rebounding percentage has fallen way off from what their numbers were in the non-conference. So they're not generating anywhere near the same number of second chance opportunities to make up for some of the poor shooting that they've had. So that's that's always tough for me. Um, and with with Kansas and their ability to be efficient inside the arc, like you, you documented their three-point shooting issues. But inside the arc here for Kansas is where I think you could potentially get some, some work and make some hay in this matchup. Because you mentioned the no middle, but at least on paper – you have the number one two-point field goal percentage offense in the Big 12 in Kansas against the number nine two-point field goal percentage defense in Oklahoma. That's that's where I see the big mismatch. So I'm with you on the Kansas side here if they can stay out of foul trouble. That's always the risk when you're betting on this Kansas team, right? And just overall, to go back to wide-angle lens view here, Kansas is undefeated at home, saw the, the best of the best of them against games against teams like Houston. They're 2-5 and five on the road, and this is a road game. So I think you're right that you're going to see some Oklahoma action here. And if we get more than a possession, well, now we can have that discussion, right? Right. What do you think about, and to that point, what do you think about the over-adjustment? Maybe we don't need to dig too much into the Philadelphia Eagles, but we saw it a lot down the stretch, right? And I, 
I, I'm really curious to see where this line closes, even if McCuller doesn't go. And Kansas yeah. last played on Monday, so you're getting a little bit more time than your, your traditional, let's say, Wednesday to Saturday game, even in a physical Big 12 where Kansas got worn down. And like you said, bench minutes are a big issue. Aren't the market adjustments here on Kansas very much about home road splits? Like, I think we and saw. McCuller. Yeah, but we, we saw interest in Kansas even against Houston in Allen Fieldhouse, right? We The market was interested in backing Kansas in that game. Um, we didn't see it on the road at Texas Tech. And I, if I had to guess, there's going to be more interest in Oklahoma here. And I, th- I think it's just a home road splits thing, don't you? Yes. And look at the Baylor game, right? I was surprised where that line closed because McCullough didn't play. I know it was at Allen Fieldhouse, but that goes to the notion that you bring up that the market will back Kansas at home consistently based on the trend, even with their best player. Uh, And it is their best player. Hunter Dickinson is not their best player this season. You look at how inefficient he's been, especially when teams double him and Kansas can't hit open shots. So yeah, man, the market will probably fade Kansas and, Maybe we see a bet pop up for you in the Discord channel, depending on where this line closes. Yeah, absolutely. Should be a fun one in the Big 12. That is for sure. In the SEC, big one. Number 22, Kentucky. At number 13, Auburn. We disagree with those rankings for Auburn. Eli has Auburn as a top five team in college basketball. Right on at number 22 with Kentucky. This one, a 6 p.m. Eastern time tip-off Saturday on ESPN. Haslametrics makes Auburn a nine-point favorite with an over-under of 163. That's a big number, isn't it? And this may be another over-inflated number, which I'll get to in a minute, but I just want to give ourselves a pat on the back with the (laughs) Auburn future because I think we deserve it. Now, I have had some bad futures bets this year with Maryland and St. John's. I'm so bad about St. John's. Maybe I'll talk about that with our guest because I don't think we're going to have time. But... Auburn, you go back to the South Carolina win on Valentine's Day, a 40-point win over the 11th-ranked South Carolina Gamecocks. Now, we could have the conversation that South Carolina was overranked or overvalued in the AP Top 25, and college basketball voters, for the most part, have no idea what they're doing compared to betters. That's just a fact when you look at the market because Auburn closed as an 11.5-point favorite against the 11th-ranked team in the country. Like, what do you think, Steven, If a college basketball writer, an old college basketball writer, maybe not as old as some of the baseball voters, but still, they're pretty old. Not as old as Leonard Hamilton, but still like, what, late 50s, early 60s? What do you think they would have made the line for the Auburn-South Carolina game? Like Auburn minus four? Yeah, I mean... Pick them on a neutral, probably. Right. (laughs) It's a great point. So Auburn 40-point win over South Carolina. That was the largest win over it. This is crazy, man. I know the UNC Syracuse number might have stood out to you, but the largest win over a top 15, AP top 15 team since Villanova trucked Oklahoma in the 2016 Final Four. I think they won that game by 40-plus points, too. That was Jay Wright's second national championship team when Jalen Brunson won player of the year. Man, has he been good for the Knicks. I'm only a Brunson stand just because he went to high school, a little bit younger than me, but still went to high school together. That's my claim to fame, I guess. Buddy <laughs> Heald was on that Oklahoma team. Auburn scored 
4-7 points per possession. The fifth most points per possession in an SEC conference game in the last 15 years. Last thing, Auburn has won 20 games this season. All of them by double digits. I have my concerns for Auburn when it comes to their late game execution just because the two times we've seen it. Guard play can be an issue. Now, Trey Donaldson has come on when it comes to his efficiency and playmaking of late. But granted, I was concerned with UConn's late game execution in the tournament because of turnovers. And it didn't matter just because, for the most part, they blew everybody out. So if Auburn trucks everybody in the tournament, now I know the naysayers will say Auburn only beats people on their home floor. But probably should have beat Baylor on a neutral court to begin the season. And that was a team that didn't have a lot of chemistry to begin the year. So long story short, I'm very high on this Auburn team. Now the line may be inflated against Kentucky, which I'm sure you'll get to, but man, that was impressive on Wednesday night. I I couldn't agree with you more. I'm very excited for our Auburn futures, but I might be taking Kentucky to cover the spread here. So keep an eye on the discord. Uh, It was only one game. But we've been harping on we need to see better defense from Kentucky against Ole Miss. It was better as a top 40 offense in Ole Miss and top five in the SEC in three point shooting. And the Rebels only shot 37 percent overall and 22 percent from three. And of course, a major hat tip to Onyenso for his 10 blocks at Rupp Arena. That was fantastic. And at least on paper, this at least appears to be a good matchup, believe it or not, for the con- Kentucky defense against the Auburn offense. The Tigers offense has negatively regressed overall in SEC play, despite that fantastic performance the other night. Top 16 overall in adjusted offensive efficiency, but they're only fifth among SEC teams in conference play right now in offensive efficiency. And we've talked about Kentucky's poor three-point defense. Auburn 218th and three-point field goal percentage, ninth in SEC play. Not sure Auburn's the team that can take advantage of Kentucky's perimeter defensive issues. Most of Auburn's damage offensively comes inside the arc on two-point field goal attempts. They're top 35 in two-point field goal percentage offensively. Kentucky matches Auburn's SEC rank in that category. They're both top three on two-point field goals inside the arc. So let's go a little further. Auburn's best field goal percentage comes on near proximity attempts. Top 15 rate in the country on those attempts. Top 65 in near proximity field goal percentage. UK is also top 70 in near proximity field goal percentage defense. So it's it's good on good there. And Kentucky also has a size advantage. They have bigger guards than Auburn does. So I think the bigs for Kentucky can maybe do enough with Janai Broom to at least quiet him a little. And nine's a lot here. I mean, nine to me is a lot here, both with the matchup on paper and what Auburn does well, what Kentucky does well, and also just the size of the players on the court too. It's going to be really, really interesting to see where the line opens up because to your point with Auburn's offense, especially in the half court, transition is a different story, which I want to hit on, but they shot nine, or if you look at their bigs in particular, the four and the five between Broom and Jalen Williams. Now, Jalen Williams does rank fourth in SEC play in three-point percentage, which is wild to think coming into the year. I did not think he would be that efficient. I don't think anybody did, even though I was high on Auburn. But Broom, the efficiency has improved from both deep and the line, but those two aren't going to combine for nine of 12 from behind the arc on your average night. They did that against South Carolina. 
that's probably not going to happen in this matchup. So I am a little bit concerned about Auburn's half-court offense, which I think you are too. And then if Auburn, because, I mean, they've been dominant at home, haven't lost this year, like UConn, uh, which we touched on in the UConn-Marquette matchup. If Auburn does what they do at home, which is get out and transition, that is where Kentucky is piss-poor bad. Despite all the rotation issues and injuries aside, Calipari has been terrible with rotations, especially in conference play. You go back to the Ole Miss game. I know they blew out the Rebels at home, but to think that before the game started, because I know Trey Mitchell, shoulder injury, also keep that in mind for this game, to think that Kentucky's starting lineup healthy for the first time in a while was not DJ Wagner, Reed Shepard, Antonio Reeves, Aduthiero, and Trey Mitchell is a joke. That is their most efficient lineup. I don't know what Calipari is doing. But if we see any other lineup, if, if Trey Mitchell is healthy somehow, miraculously, and starts or plays in this game off the bench, Auburn will probably have its way in transition if Kentucky is inefficient in the half court. And Kentucky's transition defense is bad, bad in league play. I think second worst when it comes to fast break points per game allowed. So I'm really concerned about Kentucky's defense, even though they bounce back 20 combined blocks and steals against Ole Miss. A lot different when you play a team that is you can keep in the half court versus Auburn that is explosive at home in transition. Three more games to get to before we get to our guests. We're going to go quick hitter style here. I'll give my thoughts on the ones I'm betting. Eli will give his thoughts on another that he's eyeing in a big mid-major that we're keeping an eye on not only this weekend but the rest of the way. Louisville at Pitt, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time tip-off on Saturday on ACC Network. Haslametrics makes Louisville a 14-point road underdog over-under of 144.5. Eli has both of these teams unranked, obviously. I just wanted to mention this because Louisville has been a dead-over team over the past couple of months here. Eight of their last 11 games have been played into the 150s. Seven of those opponents have scored into the 80s, and the projections and the spreads keep popping out numbers in the 140s on these games. So I think there's an edge there potentially on a team that nobody wants to watch and nobody cares about and probably isn't betting all that much money on, to be honest with you. And I think the cards could probably score here. Most of their damage comes from inside the arc. They're outside the top 300 and three-point field goal rate. Pitt's D is 11th in the ACC in two-point field goal percentage defense. Louisville is also the one thing they do well offensively is get to the free throw line and they shoot a solid clip there, a a solid percentage. So all that to me adds up to potentially to another game that's going to at least play into the 150s here and potentially an over under that's going to be in the mid 140s. Eli, you have another game you're keeping an eye on here. Number 23, Indiana State in the Missouri Valley Conference at Southern Illinois. 7 p.m. tip-off Saturday on ESPN+. Haslametrics makes Indiana State a two-and-a-half-point road favorite over-under of 147-and-a-half. I love that you have finally included the number one rim and three rate team in the Indiana State Sycamores on the Outside Shots podcast. Better late than never, sir. Better late than never, but it might be too late. And speaking of the AP Top 25, all the media attention, including from us as a betting show, maybe was a net negative for Indiana State, the Sycamores, overall. Because they were in the Top 25 for the first time since the Larry Bird era. And they still are, but they're definitely not going to be ranked after this week. They lost to Illinois State on Tuesday night as a 17.5 point favorite. Undefeated. Speaking of undefeated teams at home, undefeated at home, Illinois State had lost 10 of its last 
13 games. I mean, can you think of a worse time to lose as a double-digit home favorite? No, I can't. But, hey, you live and die by the three if you're going to play like this, right? And they went 8 of 38 from three in that game. And now here comes SIU, who has the number one three-point field goal percentage in the Missouri Valley Conference. So this is the the one team in their conference that at least should be able to uh, slow down the three-point rate. So it's just, you know, I know you like spots, and they're coming off a loss and should get a better effort, but... This this is a very solid three-point defense in SIU. Yeah, and I don't think this is one of those spots where Indiana State, and, and listen, they're going to be motivated. I'm not taking that aspect away from them, but it's not like they're going to be able to get back into the at-large conversation. I think this, now it kind of changes the way I view the Arch Manus tournament, the Missouri Valley Conference tournament, just because like I wrote about in my top five things that betters may have missed, in college basketball season, if you were paying attention to the NFL more so, like a lot of our viewers probably were, especially on the Lions YouTube channel, Indiana State had a shot for an at-large before that loss to Illinois State. I don't want to say it's completely gone, but it probably is. So that may change how I look at futures for Arch Madness, and I may stay away from that market completely. But looking at this game, Southern Illinois is going to have revenge on its mind for sure, especially after getting and losing by double figures at Belmont on Wednesday night on Valentine's Day. And Indiana State is going to have its hands full. Not the best defense, especially when you look at defensive efficiency in league play. Xavier Johnson is one of the least talked about players in college basketball, but he's one of my favorites. I don't know how Southern Illinois didn't make the tournament with Lance Jones, who's now at Purdue and thriving. Marcus Damask, who's having a great season for Illinois. And Xavier Johnson, at least one time in the last two seasons, Now that they're gone, though, Xavier Johnson is one of the best players in the country that, like I said, nobody is talking about. He could be, he could be one of the lone players in league history in the Missouri Valley Conference to lead the league in scoring and assists. And he currently ranks number one ahead of one of Valpo's guards, league guards, in assists per game. So I think Indiana State is going to have a tough time containing him off the dribble. And going back to what you were thinking along the lines of SIU's three-point shooting, if they're on from three, man, it's going to be tough for Indiana State just because SIU's half-court defense is really, really good. The Salukis are top 40 in rim and three rate, too. I might just have to, like, special request request the book for a prop on over-under of number three-point field goal attempts in this game. Not (laughs) optimistic that I'll get it, but... It never hurts to ask, Eli. Final (laughs) game of the show. In the Big Ten on Sunday, 3 p.m. tip-off on FS1 Northwestern at Indiana. Haslametrics makes Northwestern a three-point road favorite over under of 139. Eli, you do not have either of these teams ranked as well. I just wanted to touch on this because I think Indiana's live to win this game, even though they may be a small home underdog for a couple of reasons. Northwestern relies heavily on three-point field goal shooting. Number one in the Big Ten in three-point field goal percentage. Number 11 in two-point field goal percentage. So they live or die by the three. And the Hoosiers' three-point defense is much improved during Big Ten play. Overall in the season, it would fool you. They rank 210th nationally. But they're number one in the Big Ten in allowing teams to shoot just 32% from deep. They also have a size advantage. They have Top five biggest team in Division One, 
That's led to shooting 64% on near proximity attempts. That ranks top 35 in the nation. And Northwestern's defense only ranks 93rd in defending those near proximity field goal attempts. So I think this is just a team in IU that I would probably bet at a pick them or better. You can keep an eye on the Discord uh, to see if uh, if that winds up happening or not. Eli, any thoughts there before we move on? Yeah, I, I'm I'm curious to see how the market rates Northwestern after the Rutgers game. We're recording that our podcast before that game takes place on Thursday night. A and B, if this is kind of one of those spots where Northwestern outplays the market's projection, or at least the market rating, because. The Wildcats just lost one of their best scores, and I know, like you said, they're reliant on threes, which is definitely worth considering after losing Ty Berry for the season. Now, teams generally play at a higher level. This is more of just like a something that I gear toward, especially when I used to bet college basketball on a game-by-game basis more heavily, that when the market downgrades a team by a significant margin, especially if Northwestern struggles with Rutgers, that they come up and they have one of those performances out of nowhere against Indiana. And Boo Boo, is definitely capable of putting a team on his back. And Indiana's offense can be pretty putrid in the half court. So that kind of goes back to the point when you were talking about the point spread. I don't know if this line is going to open at a pick. It may if Northwestern knocks off Rutgers on the road. Like, that could be the spot where they outperform the market's expectations. But if they lose maybe in double-digit fashion, uh, this line is probably close to over a possession, I want to say. All right, I'm going to step aside for the rest of this episode and allow Eli to have the floor with our special guest interview, talking a little bit of bracketology as we get closer and closer to Selection Sunday. Back on Outside Shots. Now it's time to be joined by Brad Wachtel. You can follow him on X at Brad underscore Wachtel. He does NCAA tournament projections, and he's a former basketball administrator in the Big Ten, Big East, and American Athletic Conference with Rutgers specifically. So he knows all about the back end when it comes to how the committee grades and looks at resumes for the NCAA tournament. But most importantly, Brad, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Eli. Looking forward to chatting with you. The March Madness Bracket Preview, Brad, takes place this Saturday for the first time this season. I think before the first CBS game on the Saturday card. And when it comes to NCAA tournament resumes, like I alluded to, Looking at the process itself, I know it's kind of changed over the last, or at least recent years, not necessarily valuing the last 10 or so games of various teams' schedules and kind of looking at the full body of work. But for betters that may be digging into the futures market and maybe even yes-no props for teams to make the NCAA tournament, remember, you could probably shop over at thelines.com, what's most important for the committee when it comes to grading the bubble resumes yeah so i believe it's it's a little bit different when you're judging high major teams as opposed to mid-major teams because obviously the mid-major teams don't get nearly as much as many opportunities as the high majors do but ultimately the biggest thing that the committee is looking for who have you beaten where did you beat them so if you beat a team at home like we take for example a team that's not close to the bubble right now but was on the bubble a few weeks ago. Maybe it seemed like James Madison. Um, you know, like they won at Michigan State. So that's that's going to really uh, lift up their resume 
anytime you win away win a game away from home it's huge so if we look at the bubble right now um right now you, you have teams such as uh for example new mexico so prior to new mexico's last win at nevada they only held two wins two key wins both of them came at home they had been an eight seed drop dropped down to an 11 seed and my last team in because of their poor strength of record. When you're looking at who's going to make the field, one important aspect, and this is, this is kind of a pattern recognition that I've noticed over the years. If your strength of record is in the fifties, you're in trouble. The worst strength of record to reach the NCAA tournament as an at-large bid was Pittsburgh last year. And that was, and they were 54. Um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. You, you know, strength of record is just a part of the resume. But it isn't an important part. Um, so for, for an example, like, like New Mexico, heading into that game at Nevada, they did not have any road victories, any wins away from home that really, uh, improve their, enhance their resume at all. Um, and then finally getting that win at Nevada is huge because they can say, well, we won games away from home and the committee loves that. The NCAA tournament is not played at home, of course. It's played on a neutral site. So if you're just winning home games, um, there's definitely an area of concern. You got to have some level of success away from home. Right. And with New Mexico specifically, we'll see how the Donovan Dent injury impacts their resume. Although it seemed like when I saw one of your tweets on X, you think they're, at least for the time being, a pretty surefire lock to make the NCAA tournament after that Nevada win, right? So I wouldn't say they're a lock. I would say they are relatively safe, though, at this point. Uh, they're, they're no longer in the last four in. They still have a tough schedule, which is good and bad for them because it, it they still play three really difficult road games uh, down the stretch. If they could win one of those three games, I don't see how they miss the NCAA tournament. But you could also get into a funk and lose a bunch of games. And, you know, when you're a team like that in a mid-major conference— you don't want those losses to to start adding up because you're never safe. Uh, but but yeah, for now they are safe. That road win was huge for them. Looking at some bubble teams, true bubble teams, like you said, no team is a lock. The same sentiment goes when you're talking about individual pets. But I digress. The Big East Conference is of note with the bubble because Butler maybe a little less. So of a potential lock for the NCAA tournament comes selection Sunday after their loss to Marquette. We'll see how the matchup goes against Creighton on Saturday. Steven and I previewed that one earlier on this episode of Outside Shots. Providence got a big home win against St. John's. We'll touch on the Johnnies more. Zoning in on St. John's here in a bit. Seton Hall blitzed Xavier on Valentine's Day. And then, like I mentioned, St. John's Villanova has started to come on a little bit too Dominant wins, one over Providence and then one over Seton Hall over the last couple of weeks. How many teams do you think the Big East gets into the big dance when all is said and done? When it's all said and done, obviously, like you mentioned, you, you have your locks, you have UConn, you have Marquette, um, and you have, uh, who am I missing? You have Creighton. So those teams are locks. Uh, Butler is likely to get in based on their strong wins, especially in non-conference play. Um, they have some wins away from home. They beat Boise State on a neutral court, beat Texas Tech. 
So that was big for them. Um, and then when it comes down to it, like you said, you got St. John's, you got Villanova, you got Seton Hall, uh, all right on the bubble and Providence, of course. I think Xavier, I, I don't see it happening for them. So we kind of push them to the side, barring a, a, a major sh winning streak to end the season. So right now, after Providence beats St. John's, uh, I have them in as, I have them as my last team in at the moment. Um, and for their sake, when Bryce Hopkins went down with an injury back in late December, I think it was really important for them to show the committee. The committee is looking for when there's a key injury, they're looking to see if you could still win games against teams that are in the field. And Providence has now done that. They've now beaten uh, Creighton and, you know, St. John's is a bubble team, but they seem to be playing at a level that is an NCAA tournament level. So I like the direction they're going in. I also like, in terms of Seton Hall right now, I like their wins. Um, they beat the two best teams in the Big Ten in Marquette and UConn. And the thing that they have struggled with, their metrics, especially their predictive metrics, which only are ba which only base, if you are looking to make bets, this is one thing to keep in mind, predictive metrics such as Ken Palm and BPI, the committee does not use those metrics for inclusion into the NCAA tournament. But they might use that in terms of seeding the NCAA tournament. And when you take a look at Seton Hall, their metrics aren't particularly great, but they do have the wins. So I feel like I feel pretty good about their chances. If they could finish out with wins at home and steal one more road game, I feel good about them getting in. And I do think Villanova will finish strong. And Villanova has the high end wins. So to answer your question, sorry for the, for the <laughs> long, <laughs> the long explanation. No, it's good but, stuff. But, but I think, I, I do think that Seton Hall is going to get in. I think Villanova is going to get in. And I think Providence will get in. I don't think St. John's is going to get in at this moment. Um, but again, ask me again in a couple of weeks and it might change. <laughs> Looking at the betting market here, Providence plus 188. Yes, to make the tournament over at FanDuel Sportsbook. Seton Hall plus 235. St. John's plus 146, Villanova plus 158. So of those teams in the bubble conversation, Seton Hall definitely seems like the most valuable bet to make right now. You're not calling it a lock by any means. I just want to clarify for our listeners and viewers, but potentially a valuable bet here over the next couple of weeks. And we'll see if Seton Hall's price lessens if they wind up upsetting. May not sound like an upset to you, but depending on what happens against St. John's. Johnny's probably favored against the Pirates on Sunday afternoon. And looking at that game specifically, I actually think St. John's might not be the market sentiment. I would expect public betters to come in on Seton Hall in a big way, especially if they're a road dog. But I think St. John's gets right, at least in that game at home. For some reason, it's not at Karnasaka, UBS Arena. I'm sure you have no answers to why that's the case for this game like it was for the DePaul one going back to a couple weeks ago. But staying on the topic of St. John's, they play Seton Hall on Sunday at Georgetown, Creighton, at Butler, at DePaul, then Georgetown again to wrap up the regular season at home. Then in the Big East tournament, none of their Big East tournament matchups will be considered a neutral site game, which may be of note for betters like myself who decided to stupidly take a long shot future on St. John's to make the final four when this team chemistry wise, 
I think has a lot of issues going back to that Providence game on top of Joel Soriano's regression in the last couple of weeks. But I digress with my anger towards the Jotties play of late. What's it going to take for St. John's to make the tournament? Yeah, so one thing to keep in mind, and actually, if you are betting, so Villanova is a team to look out for for St. John's because St. John's, of course, beat them twice. And as I mentioned earlier, the committee is looking for wins against the field. If Villanova can finish strong, that is potentially two more wins that will enhance St. John's resume. So I think that's something to, if you're a St. John's fan, that's something you got to pull for. You want Villanova to finish strong, even though they're both bubble teams at the moment. We're still far enough away where you're not rooting for against a specific team. So much could happen in between now and Selection Sunday. So in terms of St. John's schedule, aside from rooting for Villanova, it's not great that they have uh, two games left against Georgetown and one game against DePaul. Those games are doing nothing for them. At the very least, you want them to blow them out to to try to improve their overall metrics. That's what you need. So their remaining games, you got... Seton Hall at home, got to take care of business at home against a potential tournament team. Creighton at home is a big one because that's a quad one game. Got to get that game. And then it puts you down to, now we're assuming they're winning Georgetown twice and DePaul, okay? Because obviously if you lose one of those games, it's probably not happening. Um, Their last game is at Butler. If they could steal that game at Butler, which... Look, if they can win all six of their games, I do believe they will get in. If they can win five of their last six games, let's say they lose at Butler, I still think they can get in, but I think it's going to depend on Villanova, as I mentioned before. So there there are multiple ways for St. John's to get in. And then, as you mentioned, Eli, in terms of the Big East tournament, um, yeah, they're at a little bit of a disadvantage because their wins are not going to be counted as neutral site wins. Uh, so the only way that they can really move the needle is to get a win over a Creighton, a Marquette, a UConn. That's really going to change anything. Um, although a win against one of those bubble teams will, will likely help too. Um, but the bottom line is, uh, you know, the one other thing to keep in mind when it ter- when in terms of the committee and their selection, the Big East tournament, the last two days really won't matter. Uh, you know, the semifinal and the championship game, obviously, if they went on to win the championship and get an automatic bid, that matters. But in terms of how the committee selects teams, they do their work early. It's, it's pretty unfortunate. Um, some might say it's lazy because plenty of black bracketologists out there do their work, do their work until the, the very end. But a pattern that we've noticed the last couple days of your conference tournament in high major leagues, don't really count towards your resume. Good to note for sure, especially when you're looking at maybe props down the stretch. I don't know how long a sports book like FanDuel or maybe BetMGM decides to throw some yes-no props up to make the tournament. I don't know how long they'll keep them up ahead of Selection Sunday, but still worth noting if they do. And as you kind of go through your process here over the next couple of weeks for those markets or even Final Four futures. Staying in the Big East, one more topic would be Marquette. Huge game. Steven and I handicapped this one earlier on the show. Marquette and UConn on Saturday, top five matchup. Potential revenge spot for the Huskies. I know they won the title last year, but didn't win the Big East regular season title, nor the Big East tournament championship. But question for you, Brad. Marquette wins that game. 
How likely is it that the Golden Eagles get a number one seed come March Madness? I think if they win at UConn, they jump Arizona into that number one seed slot. I really do. I mean, UConn, people say Purdue. Some people say UConn. I think overall, on Saturday, Purdue will be the number one overall seed based on resume um, and their quality of wins. But... I, I would be, be hard pressed for for people to for most people to think that UConn is the best team in the country. So a win on the road at UConn, I mean, is massive. Now that's not all Marquette has, which is the great part. I mean, Marquette already has a good number of wins uh, away from home, including a win on a neutral court against Kansas, who right now we have as a two seed. They won at Illinois, who is a potential four seed at the moment. They beat Creighton, who is a potential four or five seed at the moment. And then they have wins against a lot of those bubble Big East teams, uh, you know, the St. John's of the world, the Villanova's of the world, um, which can go either way, you know, those victories. But they have some strong high-end victories. And one thing to keep in mind with the committee, especially when you're looking at the top-tier seeds, if you have a, another win away from home, so on a neutral court or on the road against one of those other teams, that does a lot for you. It really does. Um, so that would be monumental in my opinion. Now, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to get a one seed because we need to see how they finish, but it would put them in control of their own destiny of getting a one seed. Yeah, I'm overall surprised that Marquette didn't, or at least they've Come out of a little bit of a funk here in mid-February, but I'm still surprised, full body of work, that the Golden Eagles haven't regressed after losing Omax Prosper and all he meant to that Golden Eagles offense and defense, for that matter. One of the better isolation defenders when you look at opponents' field goal percentage dating back to last season. But you mentioned Kansas, UConn, a one-possession loss to the Jayhawks earlier, I think late November, early December, and Kansas Priced at plus 1800 to win the title over at BetMGM Sportsbook. Marquette plus 2200. Remember that you can use promo code the lines. One word, bet $5, get $150 back in bonus bets instantly with promo code the lines. First time users could do so over at BetMGM Sportsbook. So, like I mentioned, Kansas at Oklahoma and in the upper echelon of national title contenders, at least from the betting market standpoint. And they're projected on the back end of the two-seed range right now, Brad. Considering the Kevin McCullough injury, let's say he misses the game at Oklahoma and they lose, or he plays in just this recent stretch for the Jayhawks. Road struggles aside, looking at the injury for McCullough and even for Dewan Harris, how much do you think the committee takes that into account, seeding purposes? I think it'll definitely be taken into account. Uh, the question is, when does he return? Um, I don't think they've announced that yet. Am I correct on that? Correct. Yeah, so they haven't announced that. So so really, assuming he returns and healthy and all of that, it's going to be taken into account. And the reason being is because look what Kansas has done prior to that injury. As we mentioned before, when you beat top-tier teams, it means more. They've beaten Houston. They've beaten UConn. They've beaten Tennessee on a neutral court. They beat Baylor, beat Kentucky on a neutral court. So they have the high quality wins that's going to keep them hanging around. And if they're at full strength, even though they might, they're a team that may not have a ton of depth, they've proven themselves. Um, so they've been, they've proven themselves to hang around that two line. You know, I'm still not even counting them out to, 
to get a one seed. When you play in the Big 12, you know, obviously they've they lost last game, but they could still make a run because they have those quality wins. So they're still hanging around for a potential one seed. Uh, but I think it'll be taken into account for sure. And they're going to be given the benefit of the doubt, assuming when he comes back, they play at the level they played uh, prior to his injury. Staying in the Big 12, Iowa State has also made a climb up on the odds board, plus 2,500 to win the national title. Kansas has been around plus 1,800 pretty much all season long. But the Cyclones have made a big-time leap, especially when you think about a couple years ago being in fringe-ish NCAA tournament team in Otzelberger's first year after coming over from UNLV. But still, number 347 in terms of non-conference strength of schedule on Kempom. You have a really explosive guard in the sophomore in Lipsy, Mom Silovich has really come on for this team offensively and has probably been the biggest difference maker when you look at their offensive efficiency from last year to this year. What do you make of the Cyclones resume for an upper echelon seed? Yeah, right now I have them as a projected three seed and I feel pretty good about that. Um, of course, non-conference strength of schedule is just one part of the resume. And I feel like things that I've noticed over the past years, if you're a bubble team and you have a non-conference strength of schedule that's in the 300s, you're in trouble. And they're going to, they're going to make mention of that. They're going to find every single one and nitpick your flaws. When you're a team like Iowa State, who is in the three seed level at the moment, it doesn't really affect you as much as you might think. I mean, just looking at their metrics across the board, their result metrics, they have the number six strength of record in the country. Their predictive metrics, Ken Palm, they're, they're number nine in the country, five and four against Q1 opponents, including wins over potential one seed Houston, a potential two seed in Kansas, a win, wins on the road at Texas, at Cincinnati, at TCU, TCU at home. So they have the quality of wins and they don't also don't have any bad losses. So if you look at all of the big 12 teams, aside from Kansas and Baylor, uh, one thing you'll notice, almost all of them have terrible non-conference strength of schedules. So it's interesting. I feel like that didn't just happen by chance. Uh, you know, one way to take advantage of boosting your, your resume, boosting your net is to play some of the worst teams in the country. And Iowa State did that. They played Lindenwood. They beat them by 55. They beat Florida A&M by 38. They beat Eastern Illinois by 32. So they played some of the worst teams in the country, but they beat the tar out of them. They killed them. And when you do that, that really improves your overall metrics. And a lot of Big 12 teams do that. So again, to answer your question, I feel like they're pretty solid as a three seed. Could I see them potentially as a four seed on Saturday? Sure, it's possible. But I, but I feel pretty confident that they're going to be a three seed on Saturday. I'm assuming then you feel the same way about Auburn just because not as poor of a non-conference strength of schedule in terms of the metrics, but you play in a conference like the SEC, which is arguably the best conference in college basketball. I know the conversation could be had about the Big 12 and the Big East for that matter, but Auburn playing Kentucky on Saturday, best number on them, plus 1,400 to win the title. You could probably shop over at thelines.com. One of my long shot features that I bet in non-conference play would be Auburn. What's the ceiling for the Tigers seeding-wise? 
I'd say probably a two seed. Even while they have great metrics, they still don't have that up top tier win, especially away from home. They beat Alabama, which is a good win. They're 13 and 0 at home, which, you know, they're, they're unbelievable at home. As we saw, you know, last night against South Carolina, like they, they just, they're a different team at home. But they're, they're, not, they're not a bad team away from home. They're seven and five road neutral, which is good. They just don't have that top tier win yet. Uh, they also haven't really had that many top tier opportunities yet. So there, there are still some to come, uh, which they'll need in order to rise up the seed line. Uh, but when you look at their resume, they're just two and four against Q1 opponents, but they are nine and five against quad one and two opponents. So right now I have them as a three seed, but they're more of like a borderline three, four seed. Uh, not as confident about them being a three seed on Saturday than I am about Iowa State. Uh, but like you said, their metrics are ultra strong and I think they have an extremely high ceiling. They just have yet to play the top tier teams. They just, they have not played Tennessee yet. They haven't played Kentucky yet. So let's wait and see to see how they play against them. But sure, I think they're a quality team to, to mention as a dark horse candidate to make a deep run in the NCAA tournament. And they play Tennessee, obviously Kentucky this coming weekend, Tennessee on February 28th, a Wednesday. And hopefully that game isn't as gross as what we saw from Auburn and Tennessee Tigers and Vols last season. I think they combined for less than 90 points in Knoxville. So I'm praying that we actually get a not only competitive game, but a higher scoring game. Doesn't have to be super high scoring, but at least give us some offense. Two good defenses, though. That's for sure. Brad Wachtel. You can follow him at Brad underscore Wachtel on X. Bracketologist, NCAA Tournament Projections. Brad, anything you have coming up in the future here that you want our listeners and viewers to pay attention to? Personally, not, not really. Um, I would say any questions that any of my followers have on Twitter, I'm happy to answer anything you have. Um, I've worked in college basketball for 10 years. I've been doing bracketology for 15 years. So I feel pretty confident in my ability to assess what the selection committee does and what your team might need to do. So I'm happy I'm here and I'm happy to help. Thanks so much, Brad. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Big thanks to Brad Wachtel for joining us today on Outside Shots. Or just me, actually, because Steven Andres was on dad duty. I know it's disappointing. You can follow him on X at Steven Andres1 if you want to share your dismay with his decision-making in regards to missing the interview. You can follow me on X at Eli Herskovich. And you can follow the Lions on X at the Lions US. Remember, if you're looking to tail or fade our bets this weekend, you can do so with the Lions promo code, the Lions, one word, at BetMGM Sportsbook, first-time users. Bet $5, you get $150 back in bonus bets. Remember that bonus bets are not equivalent to real money, of course. And if you want to check out our college basketball contest, play.thelines.com, they're free. You have a chance to win Amazon gift cards as well. Throughout the weekend, follow our bets in real time at the Lions Discord. Link is over at thelines.com in the top right-hand corner. So for Steven, for Brad, I'm Eli Herskovich. Thanks for watching and listening to another edition of Outside Shots. So long, everybody, and good luck on your bets.